I interview people all the time. I interview extremely successful race car drivers and and builders, you know, celebrities. And if you really start digging beyond what the Wikipedia says, there's always down years. Sometimes it's like one movie that flopped or one race that went bad. Sometimes it's like four years of never winning a race. And the people who become champions are the people who stay in it and the people who look at, okay, this approach isn't working. So what's another approach? You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Femcanics, I want to hear from you and get your feedback. Text me what your favorite episode is, how I could improve the podcast, what products would you like to see, but most importantly, I just want to connect with you. Text me at 614-953-6380. Again, that's 614-953-6380. I receive each message directly, and I'm excited to hear from you. Go on, press pause, and save my number, 614-953-6380. Alana Shear is in the driver's seat today. She's an automotive journalist, columnist at Car and Driver, former editor at Hot Rod and Roadkill. She does new car reviews for Edmonds and contribute features and short stories to Sports Car Market, Road and Track, and other automotive magazines and websites. The automotive industry isn't just a career for her, but a personal passion. Alana and her husband have a YouTube channel called Challenge Her, which covers their project cars and garage work. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B coming to you, and I have Alana Cher in the hot seat in the driver's seat today. How are you doing today, Alana? I'm doing great, and you called it a hot seat. It sure is. It's pretty hot. I'm in California, and it's been over 100 degrees, but, uh, you know, I'm staying cool in the air conditioning, just working on car stuff. Oh, I love the idea of car stuff. I always give the listeners a little background how I find people, and I stumbled across you for Bogies Wednesday night, have a drink with Bogey. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. It's a lot of fun. And I'm like, wow, this is a badass chick. I want to <laughs> get her in my hot seat and get to know your story a little more and dig in. And I reached out to you. I asked, would you be interested in being on the show? And you graciously accepted my invitation. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun to do these kinds of podcasts. And I mean, that's the whole point of Bogey's show, right, is to to get us all to know of each other. Because luckily, there are now so many rad women doing car stuff that it's not possible to know them all, you know? <laughs> I know. And there's so many aspects of the automotive industry as well. And I like getting kind of the plethora on here of it's not just mechanics, it's not just painters, it's, it's everywhere. So Let's back up, and even though the listeners got kind of a quick synopsis of your background, 
what and how did you get into the automotive industry? <laughs> well, it's sort of a long and complicated story. I, I didn't start out with that as a goal. I didn't even start out thinking of myself as a car person. I didn't grow up in a car family. I didn't even learn how to drive until I was 21. When I did finally buy a car and learn how to drive, it was kind of like an accelerated college course. You know, when you take those summer classes where it's like a whole semester in like two months? Oh, yeah. It was basically like that, except with cars. You know, I, I bought a car, I bought an older car, immediately it broke and I had to learn how to fix it. And as I was meeting people who could help me with that stuff, it occurred to me that I really liked it and I wanted to do more of it. And I was reading a lot of car magazines and I was like, this seems like a great job. I would love to do this job. So it didn't happen all at once. I mean, I think I first applied for, <laughs> I'm sorry if you can hear the dog barking in the background. What's his name? <laughs> um, there's two puppies, Jerry and Stan, and I think they're lurking outside the door where I am wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What kind of dogs are they? They're dachshunds. Oh, those are awesome breeds. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I was reading these car magazines. And I thought that would be a great job. I would love to do that. But it wasn't like that happened all at once. I mean, it was still pretty mysterious to me as to how you even got involved in writing for a car magazine. And it was before Instagram. So I didn't really know any way of getting a hold of anyone other than just reading the magazines. And occasionally there would be a notice that they were hiring. And so I applied over and over again, and like never even got an answer. I think there were probably 10 years of applying to car magazines and never, never having anybody respond to it before I sort of went the other direction. I went into PR and, um, from the PR side of it, I met a lot of people who worked at the magazines. And once, you know, once I knew people and they knew me, it sort of was easier to to be considered for a job. And that was when David Freiberger, who was the editor in chief at Hot Rod, they had an open position. I asked him if I could apply for it. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. As if it was like, just like, no big deal. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you apply? And I was like, well, because there's like, I can only name like two other women who are doing this kind of stuff. He's like, doesn't bother me. So um, it took a while. <laughs> and men like that helps kind of kick open the door for women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it'll be great once we get to a point where there are so many women in the industry that it's not even a weird thing to be considered for a job. But until that happens, the kind of men who do hire women and who do recognize that women have talents in this industry they're in a special place. Like they, they deserve a blessing or two because they really make a huge difference for people. Now, Alana, how, how long have you been in your career? Like specifically for automotive, have you always been in automotive or did you venture outside of automotive at any point? Oh gosh. I think I started at Hot Rod in 2012, maybe. So like eight years in automotive journalism. Mm -hmm. But then before that I did probably six years in automotive and motorsports PR. So I feel like that's sort of half in the career that I wanted, but I would say eight years as a, as a writer for magazines and websites. Wow. And there, there's something just in listening to you share your story that I always try to point out, because uh, sometimes we, we hear it, but it doesn't necessarily register, is that you are pursuing this for a decade. You know, th this isn't you woke up, you graduated college and boom, you had, <laughs> you know, you you tried multiple avenues 
and writing in and you just didn't give up. You were relentless in your pursuit. And sometimes when I talk to some of the younger women coming out of college or their trade school, they get frustrated and they want to walk away and give up. And what I keep telling them is stay at it. You just got to keep showing up. And you did that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I, I think we do everyone a disservice by kind of having this mindset that you come out of college, immediately start working in the career that is going to be your career for the rest of your life. And everything from there is like a journey upwards. Um, you know, I mean, I interview people all the time. I interview extremely successful uh, race car drivers and and builders, um, you know, celebrities. And if you really start digging beyond what what the Wikipedia says, there's always down years. Sometimes it's like one movie that flopped or one race that went bad. Sometimes it's like four years of never winning a race. And the people who become champions are the people who stay in it and the people who look at, okay, this approach isn't working. So what's another approach? Because I mean, I was trying to get the magazine work for 10 years, but it wasn't like I just kept applying the same way over and over again. And then being like, I don't know, they are jerks. They don't want to hire me. Um, You know, I, I read magazines the whole time. So I was like, well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I need to get better. That's the first impulse. But at a certain point, you're like, no, I am good enough. That's not what it is. So, okay, what's something I can do that's similar to this? Maybe I just don't have the right connections. And that's really what it ended up being is, you know, I just, I needed better connections and I found them by, by going sort of sideways through PR. So you've done PR and journalism. Do you have a preference? Which one you like better? Oh my God, journalism. PR is so hard. <laughs> like, it's so hard. PR people get a super bad rep and they don't deserve it at all. They make things so much easier for everybody else. They work really, really hard and they do not get appreciated. I am very pro PR people, but I don't want to do the job. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> for me, that's like waitresses. I never want to do the job, but I have such admiration and respect for what they do. So you better believe I'm going to tip well. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a similar concept. So, Wow. You spent about six years in PR, and your first role was really with Hot Rod Magazine. What is that like? Because, I mean, I'm sitting back, and I'm I'm looking at everything that you've done, and the people you've been able to interview, probably the experience and travel that you've been able to do. And, you know, for the quote-unquote average person sitting on the outside looking at that, you just sit there like, Wow. <laughs> Anyone who has an interest in the automotive industry to have that opportunity. And granted, you've earned it. You've pursued it. It wasn't handed to you. What was that like when you when he said, yeah, go ahead and apply? What was the interview like for you? Oh, I think the interview was David pulling up vintage race cars on his computer and being like, who's that? Who's that? And honestly, I don't think I did all that well at it because um, I've never really been a a trivia type person, you know, there's a lot of memorization and kind of trivia knowledge in, in car stuff, you know, like what, how much horsepower does this car have? Or what, you know, what car was the first one to have an automatic transmission? And that hasn't ever really been my focus. I mean, I, 
I like this stuff when I learn it. And certainly if I'm writing a story, I'll, I'll research it, but I, it doesn't stick in my head. So I, I don't think I actually did all that well in the, uh, in the interview, but then I, he had me write, send in writing samples and he, I think he really liked those. So you sent in the writing samples and then eventually he just called you and said you got the job. Yeah. And it was a long time too, because those big corporations, they don't move very quickly. So I think I'd pretty much given up hearing back from him. And uh, he called on a Friday. I still remember that he called on a Friday and I was outside in the backyard. And he said, hey, you, you still interested in that job? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Did you start doing like a happy dance in your backyard? <laughs> I think I was just too stunned. You know, yeah. I think my, my general response to, to good news is to kind of just be like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Did that just happen? Yeah, very much. Wow. So what was your experience like at Hot Rod Magazine? I loved working at Hot Rod. It was so fun. I mean, you always hear stories of what the magazine industry was like. And and I got into it too late for the like really insane stuff. You know, I, it was already past the, the time where you could, you know, get away with anything and go on all kinds of boondoggle trips and, you know, get all kinds of free parts and people did cocaine in the elevators, whatever, you know, like none of that happened around me. Um, but it was still before the the budgets had gotten really slashed. So we were, it was still a big team and we were able to really work together. And, you know, as somebody who, who like studied history and English and enjoyed writing and grammar and that kind of stuff, it was super fun to be working with other people who were writing. And, you know, every month we'd have, you know, we'd have a meeting in the beginning to be like, what's going in the magazine? And then you know, at the end, we'd be looking at these layouts of the stories that we'd written with the photos that we'd taken and like checking them for each other. And I really enjoyed that. Where did you go after Hot Rod then? Okay, so, so I was at Hot Rod for, I think, three or four years. I can't remember. And then in that time, Freiberger had left and still the same company, but he had left the editor in chief position at Hot Rod um, to expand this new idea of roadkill. I don't know if you're familiar with the show Roadkill, but it's oh, yeah. a very popular um, kind of fun with cars YouTube channel that eventually yep. became a, a motor trend show. And yep. at the time, they thought maybe that they could start a, a magazine as well. And so he asked me if I'd like to come over and head up the, the magazine, the website, and their social media, which... I thought it sounded really fun and it was really fun. You know, it was a chance to kind of be a boss, even if I didn't have a staff of my own, like, you know, I was, I didn't have to really answer to anybody else and, and to put together a whole magazine was really exciting. And we were able to do a lot of things both on social media and the website and in the magazine that I, I kind of wanted to test out in terms of telling different kinds of stories, um, hiring more people who were women and people of color that I knew were in the industry, but I never saw getting work at other magazines. So like, that was like, like I tried to make sure that I was never the only woman on the masthead. I tried to make sure that if you flip through the pages, you wouldn't only see white faces in there. And it worked like people really, you know, nobody ever wrote in and said, this sucks. We're mad that you're doing this. But uh -huh. people, people did write in and say, Hey, I noticed this thing that you did and it's cool. So thank you for doing that. You know, so so it was great. It was short-lived just because at that time, the company was kind of making a transition away from print magazines. And so mm -hmm. eventually the whole position was was no longer required. Um, and that was a little rough. I would say that was, you know, I was talking earlier about how 
you never talk to anybody who has a pure upward trajectory. And I'll admit to you that at the time I was like, okay, I was staff editor at Hot Rod, was editor in chief at Roadkill. Clearly the next job for me is going to be editor in chief at some bigger magazine, maybe have a staff, you know, something. And then no, actually the next step for me was to not have a job at all. (laughs) So uh, that was rough. That was like a rough moment. Um, It wasn't anybody's fault. You know, it's just how it works. It's how big companies work. It's just how things work, at least in contemporary jobs. Technically, at that time, you weren't freelancing yet. Is that correct? Right. At that time, I was staff. And so once I was laid off, I had to make a decision. Do I try and find another staff position somewhere? Do I go back to PR? Or do I try and make it as a freelancer? And I chose the third one. Wow. I I mean, that's the equivalent when we say freelancer. That's the equivalent of you know, the mechanic opening up their own shop, so to speak. What was that like? It was terrifying. Oh, my God. It was so scary. And I was so insecure. Um, It was like all of the confidence that I had felt like I'd built up, all of my, like, sense of, like, even my sense of identity was so tied up in being connected to a bigger brand I don't think I realized how much, you know, how much ability I had to do things even with my own name. But I did have some good friends. Again, in the industry, it really is. It's about having connections to people and it, and not in like a, oh, you need to figure out who's important and, and like glom onto them way. But in the, you know, because I had had a job where I was hiring people, some of those people went on to get jobs. And so then when I didn't have a job, that made a big difference. You know, they remembered that I'd given them work or they remembered that they liked my work. And so in the beginning, it was like very scrabbly. Like I would, I would take on any job. I would like write a story for 200 bucks, like, which honestly is not, it's not very much money (laughs) for somebody who has any experience, you know? Um, And I just did anything, any job that somebody offered me, any writing job, I would just take it. What was your biggest lessons learned? Like when you went out, everyone has this like preconceived notion of, okay, this is what it takes to start something. This is what it takes to become a freelancer. This is what it takes to open up a shop. What what was, I guess, your biggest misconception going into it? Meaning, I thought this was the most important thing. And looking back on it, I realized now it was this. Well, I don't know if I really would say that it was a misconception, but... um I I missed one big deadline as a freelancer. Like I really biffed it. I mean, I just I just didn't do it. And and it affected things, you know? Like it lost me a relationship, a you know, b- business relationship and um and it affected the way that I felt about myself for many months afterwards. It was hard to get rolling again. I I was I was embarrassed about it and it I was worried that it was going to damage my reputation more. And so um, I've been very, very careful since then to never let that happen again. And everyone I've talked to who freelances or who, you know, has done their own shop thing or whatever, they all have a story like that. Like, like I could tell you don't biff anything, but, but that's not going to happen. You are going to biff something. Don't biff something twice. Learn from it. Yeah. Now I looked on here and I was just trying to put together a timeline and thinking through this. 
because you are you're you've been a columnist for Car and Driver as well. Now, is that part of your freelance work? Yes, um, and that's new. That's new for 2020. So um, there's at least one nice thing about this. Congratulations! Year. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And that is an example of um, a woman being in charge. There's a woman uh, who is the editor in chief at Car and Driver, and I think that she likes my work as well. Um, and it is possible that you know that a man editor in chief might have also sought me out for for a column, but. I believe that she came on, she had a bunch of open spots, and I believe that she wanted to have some more women as regular contributors. So I am very appreciative to Sharon for that. And um, and I hope everybody checks out Car and Driver because I think they're doing some really interesting things. It's something that my dad got it regularly. And growing up, I would always read it. <laughs> I've always loved cars. It's always fascinated me. But I- I'm curious, Alana, You have exclusively been in the automotive industry, and I've asked women who are mechanics, I've asked women who are painters, from a journalist standpoint, what do you think the main contribution or positive of having a woman's voice in these columns and in the automotive industry from a journalist perspective? What do you you feel like the main differences are? Or do you think that there's no difference, really? Well, I think that this applies to the idea of diversity anywhere. There's a couple of things that happen when you diversify the contributors to your business, to your company, to your school, to your magazine, to your website, to the TV show that you're making. You get ideas that are coming from different places. You know, and it's not that everyone is the same just because they have the same background, but if you have a team that is mostly made up of men, you know, from like 25 to 65, who uh, are primarily from the same area in Michigan and went to the same five schools. There's only so much that you can expect them to look at outside of where they came from. Same for anything else, right? Like if you have a women's magazine, and it's all white girls from New York, again, you're missing stuff. You're not you know, you're missing ideas, you're missing cultural things that could be very interesting for your readers and could make your product better. Um, You're missing mindsets that might solve problems in an interesting way, like if you have a shop. And you're also missing the ability to reach an audience that wants to see themselves represented. So I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but if I walk into a party and that party is all men, it's not a party I'm going to want to hang out at. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's going to have right. a different vibe. But if I walk into a party and there's men and there's women, I'll be like, okay, cool, cool party. You walk into a party and it's like men, women, maybe children, some old people. You're like, okay, this is going to have a different vibe again. Like, this is going to be even more mellow, right? Right. And I think it's the same for for a work environment. If you walk into a workplace and there's different faces, different ages, um, different races, different genders. You're just going to be like, there's someone here who I'm going to be able to communicate with. It might not even be the person who looks the most like you, but just the fact that there is someone in there who looks like you, you know that there's the possibility of being understood and being listened to. That's so beautifully put. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> no, it, it is. It's just, it's seeing yourself in other people through that woman or person of color shining their light, it gives them the permission to do the same. 
And it's such a beautiful thing. And it's so simple, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it's simple and it's complicated because I have some sympathy for people who don't understand why it matters. You know, I think even, you know, even some of us, you know, like I'll stick with women because I can I can speak confidently about there. But like, you know, I'll meet women who'll say, oh, I, you know, I'm in an all male environment and it's fine. It's all great. I don't have any problems. But if you keep talking. There, there always are problems. They might not be the truly horrific problems. In fact, I hope that they aren't. Um, but there's always sort of like, oh, well, you've been here 10 years and that guy's only been here four years, but he's getting like better jobs than you or better assignments than you, or you're not being offered a position above the position that you've been in. Or when there's a company meeting, you're the only one who ever thinks to make sure that there's coffee on the coffee maker. Maybe you don't mind, but you know, you shouldn't be the only one who has to do that. And I think that that sort of thing is, it's hard to recognize because a lot of times as a coping mechanism, we tell ourselves, this is fine. I like this. This is fine. I'm doing this because I want to, I'm doing this because it's easier. I mean, I would be very surprised if amongst your listeners, there's somebody who hasn't at least once pretended not to know the solution to something or been soft about presenting it because they just didn't want to make a dude feel bad. <laughs> I've heard that a lot. <laughs> so they like hint around it until yeah. eventually the dude comes up with it. And then you're like, yeah, that's so smart. But you could have just done it like <laughs> half an hour earlier. You know, it's like, and you just, it's just because it's easier, right? Sounds you know, exhausting. Like, I mean, you sort of build it into, you build it into your life. So it's not exhausting. It's like exercise, right? You build up the muscles to do it, but you shouldn't have to, because you think about, well, what could you have done with that half hour of your life? If you could have just said, actually, dude, this way would be smarter. Why don't we do it that way? In fact, we are doing it that way. And then you could have just moved on, done something else. Yeah. I'm chuckling just because... Yes, many women have talked about exactly what you explained. And and I guess kind of staying with the female topic, I've found your response really cool. When I asked, what message do you hope to convey through your story? And I'm going to share your response. You said, I just want people, men and women, to not be scared of their cars or of saying they are car people. And that intrigued me. I paused there. I'm like, what do you mean by that, Alana? And it, this next answer answered my question. There's no wrong way to be interested in cars. And there's a lot of joy to be found in pursuing a career or a hobby in automotive. And it got me thinking, Alana, like, there's a lot of, I don't know, judgment around how to be a car person. And I never honestly thought about it until you wrote this. And I started reflecting and thinking about it. I'm like, there really is. I mean, amongst women, there's the whole sexualizing women around cars and some women want to do that. And then there's a whole camp of, no, don't demean the women. We've worked too hard. We want to be taken seriously. And there's kind of this back and forth around that. And then there's just the overall, hey, there's not many women in the industry. There is no wrong way 
to enjoy automotive. And I, I think that's beautifully said, but often not reflected on. We have our own way of, hey, I'm a car person because of this, and this means you're a car person, and then have a definition around it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I've been in the industry now in, in multiple different positions for quite a while. And I can't tell you how many people have apologized to me for what they like, men and women, but mostly women, you know, and it'll be like someone who's doing something really rad, you know, like I'll, I'll be talking to someone who's a salesperson at a classic car place and I'll be like, oh, what are you driving? And then they'll be like, oh, well, it's like a BMW, like SUV or something like that. And they'll be like, yeah, sorry, not very cool. And I'm like, like that it is cool. That's a good car. And, you know, like you don't have to, you don't have to like prove yourself with every single movement and motion in your life that you're like a legitimate car person. I know people feel like they do. And certainly women feel like they do. I used to feel like I did, you know, and even now there'll be times where I'm like, ah, crap, I don't, you know, I don't know this reference or I didn't know that bit of F1 history or something like that. And now I have to feel dumb for five minutes, but at least I only feel dumb for five minutes now. Whereas I used to like feel dumb for like two weeks, you know, I'd be like, beating myself up over it for two weeks. Like, I can't believe I didn't know that. I don't belong here or whatever. It's not true. And I've met people who I'll be like, oh, are you a car person? And they'll be like, no, no. Uh, you know, I have a I have a vintage Citroen that, that I've been restoring, but I'm not a car person. I'm like, well, why aren't you a car person? They'll be like, well, because I don't do the engines. I only like the, the design of it. So, you know, I'm paying someone else to do all of the work. I'm like, well, but liking the design of the car is is being a car person. Um, keeping car history alive is being mm -hmm. a car person. Just bothering to have a car, you know, and maintain it is, is being a car person. You know, there, there's different levels of it for sure. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to take anything away from somebody who is, you know, super skilled and like can do every single element and remember every single part of every car, but not everyone has to be that in order to claim some car, some car personhood. I'm fine with, going to a car show and talking to somebody who's like, I actually bought this car just because it has a cool interior. And that's really all I know about it. I'd be like, that's all right. It is a cool interior. <laughs> exactly. Now, since we're talking about car person, you clearly are a car woman uh, and not just by being a journalist. Even if you didn't have the cars that you have, like you said, there's different ways to love and be in the automotive industry. Do you care sharing your cars that you have? Um, sure. I mean, it'll it'll take forever to go through them all. But um, so between my husband and I now, we have more than a dozen different cars. Um, my daily drivers, well, recently I've been doing a lot of new car reviews. So I've been cycling through new cars, which kind of makes me feel like a cheater, but I am enjoying the air conditioning. <laughs> but you know, up until that point, the only cars I own are, are old cars. I don't have anything that has fuel injection or air conditioning. So I have a, a 71 Opel GT, a 69 Dodge Polara, a 70 Challenger, a 69 satellite wagon. That's a project. Um, what else have we got? A 69 Charger RT, a 71 Cuda, 93 Cummins turbo diesel, 78 Dodge crew cab dually. Um, and then two big ramp trucks, a 68 and a 71 and a 64 Ford Wrecker. 
and an 81 Turbo Trans Am. Oh my gosh. There's probably some more, honestly. I mean, it's not just muscle cars. (laughs) So what drew you? Is there something it's just like you see it and you're like, that's really cool. Or are you like dedicated to something (laughs) specific? Well, I started out with Uh, I started out with Mopar muscle cars just because my first car was a duster. So I learned the most about them and kind of the most into them. And, and even having expanded out of that, I still have a great affection for Chrysler's muscle cars. I just, I really like the design of them. I like the history of them. I like the performance of them, but then a neighbor had an Opal GT. Like, I think they bought it to flip it and I saw it and was just like, what is that? I need that. looks like a teeny tiny Corvette. And, um, so I looked for one for several years, uh, and before I actually pulled the trigger and bought one, uh, and I love it. It's fantastic. And, and it kind of gave me an entry into smaller cars, into cars that have four cylinders, you know, European cars. Um, and then the truck stuff, that's really more my husband's deal. I mean, I'm not against the trucks. I drive them all the time and they're rad, but, um, you know, he's really into trucks. So that's where a lot of those came from. And speaking of your husband, you guys have a YouTube channel together, right? <laughs> we do. We do. Although we, we've been lazy because it's been too hot to record anything. But it is Challenge Her, which is the same as all of my other social media. And um, and it's uh, we drive our own cars. We drive some of our friends' cars. Sometimes we'll, we'll do some uh, mechanic stuff, show people how we're fixing things or working on stuff. Wow, that that's so much fun. I interviewed uh, Emily Reeves, and she talked a lot about just having that experience around, like, doing these restorations and being in the garage with her husband and how it actually brings them closer. And I think it's such a cool concept where, you know, previous generations, it's, the man is in the garage and the woman's in the house. And there's this kind of division, you know, the man cave. but like blending the lines around that and really morphing it together and doing it together. Have What have you noticed with your experience in doing that with your husband? Well, I mean, we met doing that. I mean, we met because I needed to build an engine and had started it on my own and sort of reached a point where I was like, I don't, this is much harder than I thought it would be. And, and that was what he did professionally. And he, he came over and helped me out. Um, and we started dating soon after that. So it's sort of always been our relationship together. And we, you know, we go back and forth. Sometimes he'll be more in the mood to work than I am. And I'll be like, fine, you work on it. I don't feel like it. But um, Emily's great, by the way. And her husband, Aaron, is is really fun. But she's right. It, it It's fun to work together. It's fun to have a project together. I mean, and I think any any marriage where people do do work on a project together, whether that's house stuff or gardening or you know, I don't know, children, <laughs> you know, you get some of that experience. It is fun to to watch something come together because the two of you have put effort into it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm curious, what is your proudest moment in your crew? And, and you shared with me your proudest moment, but I'm curious if there's a particular article that you wrote that just really either touched you or really sticks out to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I'm i pretty pleased with almost all of the articles I've written. Um, and they all were important to me in, in one way or another, at least, you know, I mean, the, the big ones. I I love every 
every time I've had a chance to feature somebody has been really great. I, I like doing the interviews. I like spending time with people. I did a story about Bobby Allison for Automobile Magazine where, you know, we had a little, we had a little cry together remembering his wife who had passed on. And that was pretty intense. But I, I mean, you know, one thing for me, and you know, maybe it's something I should work on with therapists, but um, is that a lot of times I, I just move forward. I don't even really like to read stuff once it's like, I like to read it once, once it's in print, just to make sure that nothing got horribly messed up. And then I don't really look back at things like even on social media, like I don't really like to do flashback Fridays or, or throwback Thursdays. And I was reading an interview with a cartoonist named Lisa Hanawalt, who said that she feels sort of similar, like the work that she does is something that she wants to get out. And then once it's out, <laughs> she's like, all right, it lives in the world now on to the next thing. And that's sort of how I feel as well. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think one thing stands out to me as like the proudest story. They've all been, they've all had challenges and they've all been very rewarding. Have you ever been in a situation where you were just starstruck? Um, or, I mean, I'm thinking from a journalist standpoint, you would have to just be kind of used to that. <laughs> it's something else, actually, I think. It's not that I'm used to it. It's more like, because I'm actually very socially awkward, really. Like, I, or I feel like I'm very socially awkward. But for work, whether that was for PR or for writing a story, there's a kind of I mean, it's invisible, but there's a kind of armor of the job. Like I have a job to do and that job is to talk to this person and find out more about them. And so there's not really space for being starstruck or for being jaded. It's like, it's just like a very laser focus idea on this person. Like I have researched this person. I am prepared to talk to this person and, you know, fingers crossed, they're not going to make it too difficult on me. And, and I've really only had one or two times where somebody I was working with was so difficult that I didn't come away with a, a solid interview. Wait, what does that look like? I, I'm just curious because, it, you know, from my perspective, I sit and talk to all these women and they don't make it difficult. What is, I'm, I guess I'm selfishly asking for my own <laughs> curiosity here, <laughs> being in a position of interviewing people. What is that like? Like, do they just not answer questions or? Um, I mean, I, I'm lucky because I haven't ever really dealt with somebody who was like truly antagonistic. I think people who work with um, more mainstream celebrities occasionally deal with somebody who's like really doesn't want to be there and they're only there because their publicist is making them be there and they're, you know, very unpleasant. That has never been my experience. Um, I've dealt with engineers who are either so shy or just so bored that they they don't really give you much, you know, like I've dealt with some race car drivers who are so used to kind of playing it close to the vest that they don't, th there's a lot of like yes and no answers from people when you're dealing with somebody who like really doesn't want to give you a whole lot. Um, and that can be difficult. I'm sitting here laughing. I, I can imagine you asking an open-ended question and I'm just saying yes or no. <laughs> like it, It's like that doesn't even fit here. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it happens occasionally. It doesn't happen super often. I mean, the worst is like, if you haven't, if you end up doing an interview that you're not prepared for, which again is not something that I try to let happen these days, but you know, 
it's always possible, especially like during the, like if you're doing event coverage and you end up with an opportunity to interview somebody, but like you didn't have time to, to do research or really prepare. And so you're sort of, you're sort of trying to get them to talk about themselves enough that you can ask follow-up questions without giving away the fact that you don't know who they are. So like <laughs> that stuff is challenging, but, but I, I have been lucky that I've never really had somebody who was like an enemy. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, I think maybe we've left the listeners hanging long enough. What is your proudest <laughs> career accomplishment? <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> I hope it was the yes, book. Yes. <laughs> yes. The book. Okay, good. Um, yes. So I I just finished a book, my very first book. Um, it's sort of, it's not really a ghostwriting because I, it's like an established um, partnership, but it is an autobiography with Don Prudhomme. So it's Don Prudhomme, the racer, who's a famous drag racer from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And he did an autobiography and I wrote it for him. Um, so that was a series of interviews and then organizing all the interviews and putting it all together into a book. And um, we finished it this year. It was very difficult and very fun. It comes out in October and I'm pretty stoked about it. I hope people really like it. You said it comes out this October? That's right. Yeah. October 2020. You you got to be like chomping at the bit. This is like a big year for you, Alana. You you have the car and driver and then the release of this book. I know it's, I mean, it's like everyone else is like 2020 is the worst year ever. And I'm like, okay, yeah, mostly that's true, <laughs> except also a couple of good things. And it's pretty <laughs> awesome too. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, and I, that kind of leads me, you can tell you're a writer. You get such... <laughs> pointed information in like two sentences and I'm like oh my god that's great <laughs> and I'm gonna share this too because it's amazing the question I ask is what themes or advice would you like to share with the femganic audience and how you answered this I'm like damn that's that's really good and but it's so pointed so this is what you said in it you don't have to do things exactly how the famous men do it or even how the famous women do it. There are so many ways of being a part of the automotive culture. There is absolutely room for your way. And I, I like I paused. It's like you have these like deep thoughts, like these one-liners where I'm like, <laughs> ooh, yeah. And I wanted to read these because I'm like, we should all think about this. And particularly the men and women who are... Like, you know, I want to do that. There's people who come up to me. They're like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a podcast and I want to interview women similar to what I'm doing. I'm like, yes, do it. Do it. Because the reality is, is one person, even if there's multiple people in the same space doing the same thing, cannot do all of it. And I just thought that was yeah. beautifully written. Well, thank you. And yeah, I, I mean it. And like you said about encouraging other women to do a podcast, it, it's true. It's like... It's so important to realize that there's space for all these different ways of doing it and that everybody's going to have their own take on it. And like, that's fine. You know, I mean, how many people do you know who listen to multiple different podcasts about true crime or multiple different podcasts about cars? You know, it's not like people only have space for one thing in their life. And that and like, if you don't do it exactly the right way, then then you're not going to be their thing. And if you're not their thing, there's somebody else who you are going to be their thing. Yes, exactly. And and it goes back to the simple principle of just show up. 
just dive in and do something <laughs> that you love doing. Honestly, Alana, I, I started this podcast because I wanted to learn from other women and I couldn't find it anywhere. It was for me and I really didn't expect anyone else to listen. <laughs> and lo and behold, <laughs> it's like, oh, crap, that's a lot of downloads. Ooh. And then it's this fear <laughs> sets in. I don't know if you experienced this like when you, you had your first published article in Hot Rod or maybe Car and Driver or any of those where it's like, okay, your head's down, you get it done. And then you put it out there and then you pause and you're like, oh, shit, people are going to listen to that. People are going to read that. What if they don't like it? What if, oh, my gosh, like, did you ever experience that when you were publishing? Oh, my God. I've, every time, like, I think maybe for some people it goes away. But again, talking to so many people, doing so many interviews, um, it doesn't go away. You just get better at sort of recognizing it and not letting it slow you down as long. So yes, I'll still get like a little stomach ache when I hit send on something and it goes in and I'm like, all right, well, I can't call it back now. But again, like that used to be something that would paralyze me for a lot longer or keep me from pushing for another thing right away. Or it, like, here's an example. I used to not send my invoices until a story was published um, because I would be like, well, there's still time that they're not going to like it. There's still time that they're not going to like it. But now, all right, I don't always do this because, but it's mostly just because I hate writing invoices. But now like I feel totally comfortable sending an invoice along with the story, which is the professional way to do it. You have done the work, you have turned it in. It's time for them to put into the process uh, of paying you for it. And uh, you know, for me, it's just, it was like a mindset thing to be like, even if I have to make changes, that doesn't mean I didn't do the work. And so it's, you know, it's kind of like, all right, I'm fine. Like I've done this a million times and I still feel a little bit nervous and I'll get over that nervousness and I'll do it again a million and one times and keep going. I love it. This is setting me up for what I call the red line round, which is five rapid fire questions. There's no right or wrong answer to it. Whatever pops into your head's the right answer. Are you ready to give it a go? Okay, yeah, I'm ready. All right. Alana, who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? There was a journalist named Martha Gellhorn who was nothing to do with cars. Um, she did like travel writing and war writing and stuff, but she was just a complete badass and she was always in the right place to tell the story. And she always told that story from her own viewpoint, not, not like anybody else did it. And I think of her when I need to channel some bravery. Wow. H have you ever had an opportunity to meet her? No, um, she died. Uh, gosh, uh, she died a long time ago. Um, 80s, maybe, but like, uh, she dated Hemingway. Oh, wow. And, you know, like, she was old school war. But like, you know, like she like drove across Africa, like in the 20s or wow. something like that. Like I said, nothing scared her. So clearly, I didn't know who she was. <laughs> it's really the inspiration and in pulling from her work. How did you stumble upon her work? I think maybe I read an article, maybe in like, um, maybe somebody had done like a history article that mm -hmm. had mentioned her or may, there might've been a new, I think maybe they, they had published a book of her essays and there was a review of it in like one of the book review, like New York Times book review or something. And um, I feel like I find a lot of stuff when a book comes out about it. I think that's pretty yeah. normal. But you don't need to feel bad about not knowing about her because honestly, I forget her name <laughs> all the time. Like you don't, 
<laughs> like if you weren't like a journalism student, she's not very famous. I wasn't a journalism student, but her books are really good. And her life story is really exciting. It's crazy. You said review and I'm like, oh, you review cars for Edmonds too. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's like this, this is only a 45 minute to an hour podcast. How do I fit all this stuff in, Alana? My gosh, come on. <laughs> Yeah, dang you. (laughs) Number two, where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck on the job or your story? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I am a big, like, I like to talk to another person. So if, if I can find someone who is an expert on that thing, who's willing to talk to me, it's like a little bit scary to make a phone call, but that's usually like the easiest way like to immediately get your answer because you can be like, do I understand it yet? And they'll be like, no, not yet. And it'll be like, okay, explain it again. Like, do I understand it yet? And they'll be like, yeah, that's right. But uh, aside from, from just calling people, which I realize isn't necessarily an option for everybody. Um, YouTube is full of amazing videos. There's also very bad videos, but you know, you can, you can kind of tell pretty quickly by reading comments and and looking at the connections of that video, whether that's something that where other people are like, yeah, this is this person knows what they're talking about, or yeah, maybe not. Um, so YouTube videos are really good. I mean, I'm very lucky to, you know, to live with another car person. I am a huge book reader. Like, I can't even describe to you what our house looks like right now in terms of like how many books are everywhere. So if I have enough time and I know I'm going to be researching something, I'll, I'll buy a book or two about it. You know, sometimes I'll buy 10 books about it. So your old school book, not Kindle or online. I mean, I'll do all of those things, but the thing is with, I mean, there are mistakes that make their way into books. Absolutely. I know I've written a book, but, but books have more of a process of checking than online does. And, and so depending on what it is that you're looking for, if you can go back to a more original source, you you might get a better solution. I mean, it really depends what you're looking for, right? Like, you know, I do a lot of history stuff. So if I can, if I find a book about Buick that was written in 1960, it's probably more accurate to what was happening to Buick in 1960 than if I look at a website from, from today. But it really depends. That's a great point. Alana, what excites you most about what you do? Oh gosh. I mean, before this year, I would have said probably the, the traveling. I mean, I love, I was on the road almost all the time, but this year I've been having to do work without doing much traveling and it's still been really exciting. So I think it's, I think it's probably the people that I get to talk to, um, you know, getting to be a part of what they're doing. I just worked on a story about, um, speed demon, which is the the land speed racing team that just set a record, 470 mile an hour record at the Bonneville Salt Flats, which is so fast you can't even process it, you know? I saw that and I'm like, holy crap. It's pretty wild. Um, and, you know, and getting to talk to all the people on that team and and like learn where they came from and what it feels like to work on a car that goes that fast and then to get to feel like, hey, I was a little bit a part mm-hmm. of this, you know? Like I didn't make it happen, but I made it possible for other people to know that it happened. And that's a good feeling. Yeah, to feel part of it. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in this industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? A personal habit. Going somewhere new and and looking at something new. um, A lot of times it's just going for a drive on a road I haven't been on before. I get a lot of ideas when I'm driving by myself. So kind of leaving the desk. That's your meditation. Yeah, exactly. 
Mm, I've, I've heard that from a lot of people, and I, I tend to agree uh, driving. Now, for me, I would love racing. It's something like going faster. <laughs> Everyone has their thing. Sometimes it's cruising. I think it depends on the car, though. What is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the automotive industry? I would say that it's very easy to feel like you have to choose a side through the automotive industry when you're a woman, that you have to either sort of be only associated with other women and have everything that you do be about your womanhood or to sort of deny being a woman and try and and basically be like, just like a woman-shaped man and have all of your friends and all of your connections be men. And I feel that neither of those is a journey for long-term success. When I meet a woman who's like, ah, yeah, I'm not friends with other women. I just don't get along with other women. I'm like, mm, red flag. <laughs> you know, like you you need to figure out how to get along with, with some other women. Um, and when I meet a woman who's like, you know, all the men in this industry are predators. They're always insulting me. Like I can't work with them. I, again, I'm like, you need to figure out, you know, what is going on there that you're so tender. You know, are you in a bad group? It's not that it's impossible. Like, but if you're in a bad group, you need to get out of that shop. You need to get out of that team uh, because that's not the way that most men behave. Uh, but there's also the possibility of being so eager to look for anger at someone that you don't let anybody have any forgiveness. And sometimes people are just dumb. They're not meaning to be they're not meaning to be cruel to you. They're not meaning to hurt your feelings. And they're definitely not meaning to make you feel bad. They just don't know what to do with you being unexpected. So for me, it's very important to, you know, to absorb strength, to have strength internally, to support the other women that I meet in this, to not let them intimidate me by being prettier or more talented or younger, which I, I see a lot. And with the men, the same thing, to not let them intimidate me by being more confident or aggressive or faster drivers or whatever it is. It's like, there are going to be people that you meet that are better than you. And there are going to be people that you meet who you can help. And if you just try and treat everybody as worthy of your time, worthy of your energy, but not worthy of all of it, <laughs> then then you can kind of move forward and hopefully have like a more balanced interaction. Ooh, I really like that. That's great advice. And Alana, where and how can people connect with you? Um, the best way to to kind of figure out what I'm doing and to get a hold of me is through Instagram, which is Challenge Her. So that's C-H-A-L-L-E-N-G-E-H-E-R. Um, and the same on Twitter and the same on YouTube. There is a Facebook page. I don't check it very often. It's not a great way to, to get a hold of me. So those are those are the places. Um, you can subscribe to Car and Driver. You can write letters to Car and Driver, and they'll send them up to me. You can watch videos on the Edmonds YouTube channel. Um, you can read Road and Track. You can look up old Hot Rod articles. And uh, you can look for the Don Prudhomme book coming out in October. That is way exciting. I can't wait. That's super exciting. And Alana, thank you so much for being in the driver's seat today. I really enjoyed learning and understanding your perspective and your journey. 
from a completely different angle in the automotive industry. It just blows the doors wide open. Oftentimes, I think we assume men write all those things, all those articles. So this this is awesome. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have been wrong for a lot of years. There were only a few women. But nowadays, there's quite a lot of us. And um, hopefully, it'll be even more. So I think it's great that you're that you're talking to women. And I'm really flattered that you included me. The honor has been mine, truly. My name is Alana Sher. I'm an automotive journalist, and I'm a femcanic. Tony Avery is in the driver's seat next. She's the owner of GirlsDriveFast2.com, which covers new car reviews, vintage car reviews, racing schools, track days, and other industry events. She is also a pro-driving instructor. Be sure to tune in. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribes for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?